Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Darren Aronofsky's new film, Mother, which tells the tale of a young woman whose seemingly idyllic life is thrown into disarray when her husband, an older poet, invites strangers who claim to be fans of his work into their home. The film stars Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem, alongside Michelle Pfeiffer and Ed Harris. In addition to Mother, Mr. Aronofsky's credits include the feature films Noah, The Wrestler, The Fountain, Requiem for a Dream, and Pi, and the short films The Truth is Hard to Find, The New York Times' Brian Denton, Lou Reed and Metallica, The View, No Time, Protozoa, Supermarket Sweep, and Fortune Cookie. He was nominated for both the DGA Award and an Academy Award for his direction of the 2010 feature Black Swan. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Aronofsky sat down with director William Friedkin to discuss the making of Mother. During their conversation, Mr. Aronofsky discusses the inspiration he took from Luis Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel, the three-month rehearsal period during which he figured out his visual approach to the film, and his thoughts on the broader allegorical readings of the story. Hi, pal. What a pleasure. So, Thank you. Darren, my first question to you is, how much do you want the audience to rely on metaphor mm. or allegory in their appreciation of this film? Well, it, it all started with allegory. It, it started from a place of um, all my work outside of filmmaking is environmental work. I'm on the board of directors of the Sierra Club, and so I just think about this a lot. And you know, I talk about my grandparents. Think about what? Well, I, my grandparents came to this country to give me a better life, and I have a son now. And I look at him, and I wonder, are we actually? Can I actually give him a better life? And I'm terrified because the reality is really scary, as we're finally all sadly seeing and witnessing. And a lot of that rage built up. And I was like, how do I channel this? And I'm not the type of filmmaker to go and do a biopic on the guy who started Greenpeace or something. But even though I'm sure it's a great story and there might be a filmmaker who should make that. Um, but I really like the idea of trying to sort of take a global issue and put it into a single house. Because I think, you know, right now in Canada was the largest forest fire in the history of Canada. I didn't even know about it till a couple of weeks ago. But it's a hard thing to relate to, but it's very easy to relate to if someone comes in your house and puts a cigarette out in your carpet. You, you never forget who that guest was. So, inspired by probably Louis Boonwell and Exterminating Angel, I got this idea of taking a really macro thing and making it very small and start this allegory. 
doesn't answer your question quite yet. No, it doesn't answer yeah. my question because you're talking about global warming yeah. or climate change. Yeah. As, and, the, as the inspiration for the allegory. Okay. It seems to me it's an you Your last film took a page out of Genesis. Right. I think this film takes uh, a few pages out of Genesis <laughs> as well. And Revelations. To me, yeah, and Revelations. But to me, if you are talking about allegory, what comes across the screen to me yeah. in, in terms of allegory, and I, w would you be comfortable, first of all, if people just see it as a horror film? I don't think anyone quite sees it as a strict horror film. Would that bother you if they did? No, not at all. I, I would say it's more horrifying. Or thriller? A, a thr yeah. I mean, it, it kind of, I don't really fall into genre too well. I like to take the structure of genre and use that as a skeleton to put other stuff on. So like Pi was very much just a thriller. And then I was able to put all these sacred geometry and Kabbalah and all these other ideas on it. And so I've always leaned into genre, but I don't think I'm ever strict on it. But this film, for a lot of people, works as just a story between an older man and a younger woman, a creator and a, not really a muse, but more of a caregiver, and the inequality of that and their marriage starting to fall apart. And I've had people just interpret that and say, oh, I felt just like my relationship, and that's okay, you know. It seems to me that what you're talking about in an allegorical sense is that because you don't give the characters names. It's mother. By the way, why the exclamation point? Well, it's funny. I, <laughs> well, I, I kind of, I think the film was very much a howl into the, you know, into the world of just kind of my frustration, my rage. And so the exclamation point, I mean, when I first started writing it, I typed out the six letters of mother and then I just sat there for a second and then it was like shift one and it just sat. But then when the, the, the calligrapher, actually, we filmed him drawing the exclamation point, I actually thought it's kind of the structure of the film, too. It's like a line straight down and then a punch in the stomach. So um, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, too. But no, really, it was because it was I'm screaming for people to listen to her story, to listen to mother's story. Our, not my mother, not your mother, but our mother. And sort of try to perceive what it must be like for someone who gives all this love and gives us all these gifts and all these guests are here taking and taking and still calling her dirt. Well, it seems to me that it is recognizable as an allegory of both the Old and New Testament. That too. That you're talking about the Javier Bardem character as capital H him, yes. which implies God. Yeah. Uh, Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer imply uh, Adam and Eve. Right. The two boys, their sons, are Cain and Abel. Right. And the the sink that, breaking is the flood. The flood. Yeah. Right. That was my last movie, The Kitchen and the Sink. Blood movie. Cain, the, the blood of Cain. The blood of Cain. Yeah, which, he gets marked, and like Javier says when he smashes his head, he says, "What have you done to your brother?" I mean, even the dialogue is ripped exactly. off. Exactly. So we're yeah. talking about an allegory yeah. of the New Testament that becomes the uh, the, Old the Old Testament, Testament, which becomes the New Testament. Yeah. It seems to me, and you must that the baby is the Christ child could be viewed as the Christ child who is given to. By the Father. By the Father to, to Earth the 
and to the people to the people who crucify and, and destroy and yeah. consume the Christ child. Billy got it. Okay. <laughs> well, but I enjoyed the film on the, how religious are you? Let me ask you this. <laughs> Do you are you uh, telling this as a religious parable, or is this a criticism of religion? Do you believe, for example, and uh, in, I won't ask you if you believe it literally, but do you subscribe to the Old and New Testament, yeah. or are you criticizing it with this film? I think, um, for me, I, I uh, think the stories in the Bible belong to everyone. They belong to, it's kind of like a World Heritage Site. They belong to the all culture. I get, I'm really uninterested in when people start fighting about who they belong to. And I really am uninterested when people start arguing about if it's history and if it really happened or not. I think the power of those stories have been stories handed down for us for a long time and there's incredible content to them. And that's why people keep telling them. And you know, when I say the word Icarus, everyone understands exactly what I mean but no one's fighting over if he really flew high to the star, to the sun, and you know. But we get the message, and I think using these stories that are, mean so much to so many people, and you can take interpretation and use it for the present tense, and use it for our lives here in the 21st century to talk about how people treat the earth and how people treat God and how God treats people is it's a way to sort of think about it. So how, I'm, how do you think about it? I mean, do you... Well, I, I look at it as a storyteller. And when I read, you know, when you read that God on the sixth day, purely as a story, on the sixth day, he's made this paradise, but he was, something was missing. It says that. And he suddenly invites these characters that he know are going to be naughty. And... He warns them not to be naughty. Yeah, but he pretty much knows what's happening. He tells happen. them not to eat the fruit right. of the tree. But for some reason, he still wanted them there, and he still tempted them, and he still, you know, like with Cain. I mean, the weirdest thing with Cain, he's like, you know, says, um, if you commit evil, then you're going to be punished. But he put the idea into Cain's head, and we tried to do the same thing in, in this film. Um and that character, and then it's a strange, the Old Testament God's kind of this character demands to be prayed to. He demands, if you don't pray, if you don't worship him, he destroys you. That happens over and over again. And so that, connecting that to a narcissistic writer, a creator in a house with a caregiver, there was just a nice lineup of like a realistic story that the actors could play, and then this kind of metaphorical thing of, of, of looking at it, really trying to tell her story, tell mother's story, but trying to sort of tell how God and humanity fits in there. Uh, but Crazy, right? But uh, kind of cool. No, but I'm asking you. <laughs> let me just say to you that I I'm not a Catholic. I'm not Christian. Um, but I believe in the teachings of Jesus. I think they are words to live by. And not simply poetic and beautiful, but difficult if not impossible, but an ideal. Mm. And that comes through the mystery of faith. Mm. We don't know where that comes from. How is it that people, many people, billions of people have believed in someone for over 2,000 years that they've never seen nor heard his voice, never seen a photograph of him, 
and yet they believe he was the son of God. Right. They literally believe this. Perhaps many here do as well. And uh, that's the mystery of faith. Hmm. Uh, what is your personal belief system? Are you, do you, you must say, I don't believe in anything or I believe in it. You were Jewish, brought up Jewish. Yeah. Are you close to that I, faith? Or? I was trying to make a prayer for the earth, uh, to be honest. So you don't have any particular religious belief I mean, in and of itself? I don't know what you mean. I, I, well, the I, Bible is a metaphor to you. Bible is is a great collection of stories, I think, and that I think you don't totally buy. Well, I mean, you think that the flood that, happened and destroyed the earth. And do the I think two that two? Uh, uh, the whale uh, sw swallowed sw Jonah? Swallowed yeah. Jonah? Yeah. Uh, I or, think it's possible, but it I, it would be difficult for me if you asked me if Jonah swallowed the whale. Right, right, right. That would present a problem. I just think there's power in the symbolism. And so I, I, I don't like getting into the argument of it, did it really happen or not. We don't know it, that. You know, We're on this earth without any knowledge of the eternal mysteries. Right. You will agree to that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, but, it, I, but I do know that we're on a planet, we're all living on this planet and that something that happens on this side of the planet affects the other side of the planet. That for the first time in human history we are seeing a limit to the bounty, it's felt infinite, like all these gifts. And in the Bible, it talks about dominion, having dominion over it. And that word has been a huge debate uh, between industrialists and environmentalists for a very long time now. And the danger of it is if you don't respect the planet, and the Pope has been talking about this, he just tweeted out like two, three days ago, if you don't respect our mother, if you don't respect that climate change is real, you know, then you will be judged. And um, so, for me, I think my my spiritual connection in this film was very much to showing respect to our planet, to our home, and trying to hold up a mirror to all of us, including myself, and say, hey, look, this is what's going on. We're actually, it's kind of ironic and sad that these results are happening, but it's also a cautionary tale. I'm very much an optimist, and that's why I made the film. I, I don't think our last chapter with Mother Nature has been written. But I do believe that there's a way to connect that force with a feminine force and that it's something to be, to be respected and to think about. So how did you sell this to a studio? <laughs> I mean, the studios are involved today yeah. with making films about guys wearing capes and leotards, men and women flying around and saving the planet. Yeah. Uh, by punching people out yeah. or picking them up and tossing them sure. off the face of the earth. How do you go in and say, I want to make an allegory about saving the planet yeah. and respecting the message of the Old Testament and alluding to the new? Yeah. Uh, and I want to make this in the guise of a horror film or a thriller. How do you... What do you say? What I think it was, I mean, it was a combination of the number. We made it for a very reasonable number for a studio. Um, the cast, um, as always. And I think, you know, it's the, a lot of these things that are don't seem to fit perfectly into the model sometimes break out. So if it's a mild risk, you know, I got them to put a chip on the green zero, you know. And... Um, 
and and sometimes it works out. Black Swan was um, also a reasonable number, and everyone was like, no one wanted to pay for it. They were like, ballet people don't like horror, and horror mm -hmm. people don't like ballet. And so um, every film has been that way, and sometimes sometimes it pays off, and sometimes it doesn't. But I think they they heard my passion for it, and and um, and I think really came down to the it really came down to the number and Jennifer Lawrence really to be honest. How um, close? I mean, Philip Roth said that he wrote four novels before he was able to get to Portnoy's complaint. Uh -huh. He wrote four different books trying to get around what finally became his most controversial to this day novel that most people simply dismiss as a novel about masturbation. How close did you come to your vision and what was your struggle to get to? Because this is not from a novel. No. This is not from a play. You wrote this. Yeah. Uh, what was, can you tell us what you went through to get to this? It was a very different process. I, I think it's important as, a, as anyone working in any craft to shake it up every once in a while, and we really shook it up on this one. The idea was to, you know, the idea came out of this five-day writing period, which really set up the whole kind of structure and the allegory and a bit of the characters. What, what do you mean, this five-day writing I kind of had the idea, and uh, I didn't tell anyone. I was working on another script, and usually when that happens, it's a pro it's a way to procrastinate. And, and usually, I've, I've trained myself enough just to write down the idea and put it in a draw, knowing I'll come back to it. But this one was like the draw was burning, and I w I just kept peeking in, and the other script wasn't working out so well and had kind of a problem in its DNA, like some scripts have. So I was like wondering what to do. And then I had a five-day weekend without my son, and I just attacked my computer. It was like a fury of writing and uh, in my underwear, <laughs> not eating, and it just came out. And um, and then I showed it to my producers, and and uh, they were like, well, there's some energy here. There's something going on. Let's explore this more. And the more we explored it and tried to work on it and figure out what made it work, it was kind of like a dream. Like as soon as you try to remember a dream, you know how it kind of dissipates into the ether, it kind of started to fall apart. Uh, anytime we pulled it apart, it like dust started to appear and float off. So I just wanted to develop the characters after that. And so I asked the actors to come in for three months and work with me. So Jen and Javier came in for three months. And then the last two weeks, I got all the actors and we actually shot the whole thing on a video camera and uh, cut it together and had a 110 minute version of it without a house, just like a taped out floor. So it was very much, you know, the, the writing process became part of the filmmaking process for the first time. And, the, and then the edit, this was a 53 week edit. And the reason it took so long is because I think I, you know, I only had three shots. There's no coverage in the film. It's over the shoulder on her face and the POV. That's it. There's no wide shots except when she's alone every once in a while. There's like four of them. The rest of it is just that coverage. So, as you know, there's nowhere to cheat. The, you know, wide shots for all of us are like, you can cut out, you can reset. If you have an insert, you can save your ass. But we didn't have any of that. And Jennifer had to work moment for moment. And if she ever fell off, like you didn't know what she was, you know, if you weren't with her, 
um, even though all this weird stuff's going on, then suddenly it didn't work. So it took a really long time of polishing and working with my editor, editor and the team to make it all make sense. You rehearsed for three or four months. Yeah. And then it took you over a year to put it together. Yeah. And you shot it first in rehearsal. Yes. That seems very strange to me. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what, I rehearsed The Exorcist for maybe five or six weeks. And by the time, I could have put it on the stage. It was so rehearsed. By the time I got it to the set to shoot it, it was dead. The actors were so rehearsed that they responded to the filming by rote. And I said to them, forget everything we've done. Please forget it. I apologize. Um, you know the script. Forget the staging. Forget marks on the floor. Now I want you to go out and just do it. Because I want this to be spontaneous. I don't want it to seem rehearsed. I don't want it to feel as though it's a play. And so I threw everything out. Now, how did that work for you? If yeah. you rehearse something like this yeah. for four months on a marked floor, I assume, yeah. uh, don't you get it to a point where it's become it, stale? It, it was very interesting because every actor is different. And Jen never showed me the character in those three months. She never showed it to me once. And I knew she wasn't showing it to me. I was terrified. Uh, but I kind of had heard so much about the depth of her talent that I kind of just said, she's going to do something, she's going to do something. And I think she was just taking it in. She was learning about the character. And she's a strange autodidact. She's completely taught herself how to act. But I also think when she does a role, it's the same thing. She takes all this information in. And until she slipped off her shoes and was barefoot in the actual house, I never saw her act. Well, what was the her. point of four months then? I think it was for, we went, we would sit at a table next to it, and we'd go through every line, every scene, then we'd get up on our feet, and I would block out the scene, which was like, because of the, because it wasn't shot in a normal way, it was important, like, to work out some of that technical stuff beforehand. For instance, you know, because the master shot would be over her shoulder, mm -hmm. and then as she moved, I'd come onto her face, and then she'd move again, I'd go over her shoulder. But it causes all these problems, because how do you establish the line? And so I had to work out all that technical stuff beforehand because when you're on set, time is money, as you know, and you have to move in today's world. And if I, if, if, if I establish the line this way, then like three scenes later, because it's one continuous shot, um, I might be really stuck in a corner. So I would have to backtrack out of that. And I got to do that while rehearsing. So they kind of, it also was a rehearsal for me in figuring out how the camera was going to dance with them. But I don't think it really came alive for any of them during that. For Javier, what he was trying to figure out, which was really interesting because the character was written much more one-dimensional, is he kept pushing to make it, to bring in warmness, and which was fine because I wanted him to have tremendous love for Jennifer, Jennifer's character. I wanted him to love Mother. But I was like, you know, at some point, you're going to become the bad guy. We can go all the way, but at some point. And he pushed that as far as he could down the movie. And that's why I think it's interesting because it keeps the balance. Like, is this guy good or bad for as long as possible? That's a fascinating process. I think they shot Citizen Kane in about less than 30 days. 
right? Casablanca without a final script. And, and you had this luxury of these, getting this tremendous cast to work out the movie yeah. over four months. Three. Three. Yeah. You said three or four. Uh, uh, okay. Three months. Yeah. Uh, what, what is your suggested solution to this problem? You provided a, a beautiful portrait of, of the deterioration of Mother Earth. That's what we're talking about ultimately, yes. The destruction of Mother Earth by the people who live here. What is your suggestion? What is the audience supposed to take? I mean, as long as people in some other countries are burning coal, it doesn't matter if they don't use their washing machine or if they don't drive a gas car. As long as China is burning coal into the atmosphere and India and Pakistan. It's not really happening anymore. That's the actual catchphrase. Those are all, they're turning into very old arguments really quickly. What is not happening? Coal burning in China and India, it's all It's being still reversed. being done. Of course it's being done, but it's actually very old technology. That's changing. So what are we supposed to do? How are you the going faith, to get The faith these? is not in an individual thing. The faith is in government, and it has to be the on a The faith is in government? The, We're all in trouble. I agreed, agreed. <laughs> And, and it's a very, the and government that's why, doesn't give a damn about climate change. Clearly. This government has no interest, and they will not look at your film as an allegory of climate change. Well, it's about, this is not meant necessarily for the government. It's meant to inspire people to move and to change. Do what? What am I supposed to do? I mean, literally. Well, I mean, what is the message start, of your film? Start with, start with when people... I mean, we have people in power right now that have these gadgets in their pocket that is the latest of science that basically can put 144 characters to 35 million, million people in a blink of an eye. And yet they don't, they refuse probably for, I don't know why, maybe it's greed and corruption or something to accept the science of climate, which is basically as real and as proven as gravity. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the science is so concrete at this point that people are responsible for climate change, yet because of all this money behind fossil fuels, it's being denied. The what rest of the world is behind it. I asked you, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to vote for people who believe in climate change. And, and, and stop people using that's, yeah, that's it. Vote. Okay. And the thing is, and... and the message the, of this film yeah. is vote? No, the message okay. of the film is not just a vote. Come on. It's about... No, no. I'm but asking. no, but I mean, what do we do? You know what? You know, Obama leaned into the Paris Agreement, but the reality is the Paris Agreement was non-binding. It didn't actually... And the reason it was non-binding was because of the Senate of the United States, which wouldn't allow it to be binding. And that's because the reality is fossil fuel owns our government. And it's corrupt, and it's completely transparent. If you actually look at the payments and you see who's voting, what's voting, it's all about money. And we got to get money out of politics, and we have to stop corruption. And, it's, and, 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 and the reality is, it's not a joke, because it's our children's future. And if Harvey, the worst rainstorm in the history of the United States, and Irma, the biggest, strongest winds to ever hit the United States, and the largest forest fire are all happening within weeks of each other. I lived through Sandy in the blackout of a week. I had friends who lost their homes in Katrina. 
These are things that are supposed to happen once in a generation, and they're happening within years of each other, and there's a new storm just happening, and we're finally, sadly, seeing the result of it, and it's enough. And so I w had to scream. I had to say something. Filmmaking, as you know, is so hard. It takes so much energy to get out of bed and have people say no to you all day, every day, that you have to get something that really works you up. And I knew I was getting a lot of passion and a lot of energy from my work in the environment. And I wanted to see if there was a way to scream that and hold up and say, this is what's going on. Mother Earth exists and we are, and in England they call it Earth, but here in the United States we call it dirt. I mean, it goes down that deep. We drill her, we burn her, we cut her down, we show her no respect. And I had enough, and so I screamed. And the result is this thing, and I hope that enough people, that it enters the consciousness in some way to people to say, oh wow, I haven't thought of it, that it's that crazy, that we're sitting on this planet, killing each other, ripping it apart, uh, and that eventually, you know, it might all go boom. Do you believe in God? Yes or no? Oh, That's a on. yes or no question. Why, why, are you, why do you care? I, I'm curious. No, I, I, I'm very curious about your belief set. Do you believe in God? Do you, do you in believe God? in possession? That's what everyone really wants to know. <laughs> I believe that having, having seen the results of what someone else believes is demonic possession, I believe there is something to it that we do not understand. Right. We don't understand a lot of things on this planet. Right. I believe that there is good and evil in every one of us. I think every one of us can snap or can do something that is warm and gratifying to, for human nature. But I want, do, do you believe, for example, I'll, let me tell you what I f have trouble with and see if this provokes you to answer my question directly. I personally do not believe that once there was a void, that there was nothing there. And as science tells me, there was a big bang, a blast, and that resulted in everything that we see now around us. This bottle of water, your hat, your film, their lives, that there was a bang that resulted out of nowhere, provoked by nothing, but it just happened. I don't buy that any more than I buy completely the Genesis theory. I can't accept the scientific theory as simplified as it has come down. What is your feeling? Well, I don't think it's that simple, but I believe in science as is the only tool we have to actually look at our surroundings, and it uses the scientific method, I think, was a brilliant invention of a way of truly questioning and only believing in something if you can witness it, prove it, and have evidence for it. So I believe in the scientific method, and, I, and the result of the scientific method is this, and the scientific method is this, and it is this, and it is all of human invention, and that's, uh, and that's where knowledge comes from, I think. Um, so, so I lean into science and say that, um, you know, through observation, we can see things and witness things and, and then eventually prove things and then use that to make things. So I'm a scientist. That's where I come from. And I think, you know, the question about 
God is a very personal question for everyone to have. And it's, thank you for the one person who agrees with me. But it's, it's for everyone to have in their own form and stuff. It's a personal thing. But I, and I'm happy to hear about what you believe. But I, what I, I think the main thing is I, I come from everything as a scientist. I'd like to thank Darren thank for, you, Billy. For, for going out on the edge with every film that you make. Thank you. For taking a chance thank you. that helps cinema to expand thank and you. to grow. And it's due to people like you who really are the future of American cinema. Thank you, Billy. Thank you for this film. It means and a lot. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget, you can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming months as award season approaches, so stay tuned. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the great discussions we have coming up. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.